Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Hey everyone, I'm Jeff, one of the pastors at Salt Church. Uh, Stoked to be here with you and if you're tuning in, stoked to have you tuning in with us. Um, Now... You shared one law before that you want to change. I assume that you want to change that law, more taxes, less taxes, same amount. I assume you want to change it because you think it's a bad law. What is it that makes a law a bad one, though? What makes a law a bad one? I think it's two things. It promotes something that's bad, not beautiful, and if it's unrealistic, not achievable. Promotes something that's bad, not beautiful, and it's unrealistic, not achievable. Let me give you an example of a bad law. Uh, This law comes from China. It's called the Measures for Managing Internet Information Systems, Order Number 292. And it prohibits content on websites, bulletin boards, and chat rooms that could harm the interests of the state or disturb the social order. It's the law for the well-known internet censorship that happens across China. And the Chinese government employs 30,000 internet police to enforce this law. This is a bad law. Uh, Let me give you an example of an unrealistic law. This one's from California. California has the Crime Gun Identification Act of 2007, uh, and it requires new models of semi-automatic handguns to print a micro-stamp on the bullet casing when the gun is fired. So every... I didn't know this. Every every gun has got an identification thing, like you can see in that little thing there, uh, and it requires that that stamp is printed on the bullet casing when the gun is fired... And it identifies the gun's make and model and serial number. And the reason for this law is to help solve crimes. Because if the cops find a bullet casing and it's got the identity on it, they can link it with the exact gun that fired it. That's a good idea. That's a good law. The problem is, micro-stamping technology is not advanced enough to do this yet. It's not technologically possible to do what this law requires. And this law was signed off by none other than Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, what do you do when you face bad laws like that? I feel like when we face bad laws, we tend to ignore them as they're not good for us. And when we face laws that are unrealistic, we tend to reject them as it's unreasonable to ask us to do something that's impossible. And humans have some great laws, but also some that are bad or unrealistic. But what do we do about God's laws? Uh, like Mel said, we're in Romans 12. We're hearing commands from God, laws and commands from God. And some of them, as we've gone through, this is our second last week in Romans 12. As we've gone through, some of them have been beautiful. Some of them, maybe you feel like, oh, I don't know if that's such a great law from God. Some of them have felt achievable. Some of them feel completely unrealistic. And if they're bad, we'd want to ignore them. And if they're unrealistic, we'd be frustrated that we can't keep them. But if they're beautiful and achievable, well, we'd be spurred on to obey God. So here's the question we're exploring tonight. Are these laws, these commands from God, bad or beautiful, unrealistic or achievable? Because if they're good, if they're beautiful and achievable, we'll want to keep them. And we'll be spurred on to obey God and to love what God loves. And we're going to look at five commands today in Romans 12. Have a look, Romans 12, five commands. My plan's pretty simple. Each command, we're going to see what does it mean and how do you do it? Is it bad or beautiful? Is it unrealistic or achievable? That's the plan as we go through. So let's have a look at the first one, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Uh, Millions of people around the world are persecuted. Uh, If you've never been persecuted, I'm sure you can imagine what it would be like. It's doing good, but people seeing your actions in the worst possible light and attributing the worst possible motives to you. It's being insulted and mocked and shamed for what you stand for by people who don't take the time to try and understand where you're coming from. It's experiencing mental and emotional and physical harm from someone who just doesn't like you. And people are persecuted across their world for any number of reasons. But the reason Christians are persecuted is that some people just don't like Christians. And the more that we stand with Jesus, the more we'll be persecuted because people don't like Jesus. Jesus actually tells us to expect this. 
In John 13, he says, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Christians will experience persecution because we stand with Jesus in a world that doesn't like Jesus. As sometimes as well, Christians are persecuted just because we're different. I'm sure you've had this moment. You ever been to at work or at a party where someone's cooked cake and they're sharing around the cake and they offer it to someone who's on a diet and the person says, oh, no, thanks. I'm on a diet. I'm trying to eat healthy. And you're there with a piece of cake halfway to your mouth and you're like, hey, I'm trying to eat healthy too. I'm, I'm limiting myself to two pieces of cake. That's really healthy for me. Like what's happening at that moment? You're feeling judged, even though the other person's not trying to judge you. I think that actually happens often for us as Christians. Often my friends experience, as they hang out with Christians, they experience this because we're living different. We're not trying to judge people, but people feel judged because we live by a different set of rules. Our Christians will experience persecution because we stand with Jesus and we will experience persecution because we live different. And whenever it comes... Persecution feels so unfair. It's so unjust. And if there's one thing our culture has taught us to do when we face it, it's to fight back. I mean, think about revenge movies for a second. Here's a couple of revenge movies where this is a key part of the plot. There's so many more. But think about what happens in these movies. You don't even have to see these movies to know what the plot will be. It's basically all about getting back at people. John Wick is just Keanu Reeves shooting people in the face. The whole movie is just about getting back at the people that are persecuting you. That's what our culture tells us to do. In the language of Romans 12 verse 14, it's cursing those people, which means praying for God and asking God to ruin their life like they've ruined yours. That's what their movies are all about. And it feels really natural to want to strike back. But God commands us to do the opposite. Verse 14 again, God says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Pray, basically. It means bless means asking God to do good to them. Praying for God to shower them with blessing and happiness. And it struck me, this is not a neutral command. God doesn't simply say, don't retaliate. Don't curse and plot and pray for their downfall. That would be neutral. Not cursing is neutral. God makes it positive. Bless. Pray and pursue their good. That's what God asks us to do. Now, there's the command. That's what it looks like. Is that command bad or beautiful? Bad or beautiful? I think if you're a Christian, you might have a thought at the moment that goes like this. God gave this command. God is good and I trust him. So I'm going to obey this command, even if it feels pretty hard to do. And maybe if at times it doesn't feel fair, it doesn't feel that great. If that's you, let me ask you this question. Does this feel beautiful? Does this way of life feel like an attractive way to live? I think it is attractive. Are we only going to obey this way because God said it? Or does it actually feel attractive? I think this feels attractive because think about these movies again. Uh, Think about these movies again. Why do we watch them? I think because we love the idea of striking back at our persecutors and getting some justice in the face of what's happened to us. And that's what happens in these movies. Um, The more simplistic version, it's just about a pursuit of justice and striking back. But the more clever versions of these kinds of movies, they mess with these themes. They mess with the idea of the main character and how they're actually trapped by their hatred. They've let their persecutor define and control their life. They're mistreated and then they become like their persecutor and they go and do the same things that have been done to them. And at the end of these movies, they're unhappy and they're dissatisfied, even though they've got justice. The peace that they have is like this troubled peace because it turns out they're just as bad as their persecutors. But to bless your persecutors is beautiful, not to be defined and controlled by your persecutors, to do the good that they can't and they won't. That's a beautiful command. Now, next question, is it unrealistic or achievable? Well, it is hard. It is definitely hard to do this. 
when you face injustice and persecution, it's pretty rare that blessing is your instant first response. As some of us have been deeply hurt and mistreated, and we're on a journey towards forgiveness. You don't just arrive in one day, you're on a journey towards it. And I encourage you to take the next step in that journey. But I want to say it is achievable because Jesus does it. If you're here and you're exploring who Jesus is, or you're tuning in online and you're checking out who Jesus is, there's many reasons why Jesus is remarkable. One reason Jesus is remarkable is that he perfectly practices what he preaches. He's not at all hypocritical. Jesus does what Jesus commands. And so Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek and he does it himself. He tells us to bless and not curse and he does it himself. And you see it with this command. You see it on the cross as Jesus is executed. He's on the cross dying and he prays for the very enemies who have brought about his death. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. Uh, Here's another passage from 1 Peter 2, describing this moment. It said, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's what Jesus does in the face of persecution. He doesn't curse, he blesses. Uh, Here's another passage, Romans 5, talking about what we've done and how God responds to us. It says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. See, what we deserve from God the Father is cursing for persecuting and rejecting him and Jesus, his son. But God blessed us who persecuted him, blessed and did not curse. This is beautiful and it's achievable because Jesus does it. So bless and do not curse like Jesus. That's the first command. Second command, verse 15. Have a look, verse 15. Bless the, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice mourn with those who mourn basically don't live in a bubble where you don't care about the lives of the people around you especially if you're a christian rejoice and cry with your christian family your brothers and sisters in christ don't be indifferent and removed from the lives of other people and the lives of other christians in your church because it's pretty easy to be indifferent about what's happening around us Um, i reckon one way to tell if you're in danger of being indifferent is if you kind of use that label overshare. You know the label overshare? Um, where you, you say, oh man, that person's oversharing. It's, it's, it's true, that it's possible to overshare. There are moments where people go too deep, too quick, and you don't even have a relationship with them at all. Um, but sometimes we label things overshare as a defense for being indifferent. This happened to me one time. Uh, at times, I experienced depression and anxiety, Uh, kind of most of my adult life that's happened. I experienced depression and anxiety. And I remember a few years back, I was talking to someone at church and they asked how I was going, how was my week. And to be honest, I wasn't going very well. I was feeling really low that week. It was a bit of a rubbish week. And so I was honest and I shared and how I was going. And we had this really great chat and he listened. And I felt really encouraged when I left the conversation that this guy was happy to mourn with me and share in my struggles. And I was really encouraged until I heard that that they'd turned to a friend as soon as I was out of earshot and they'd said, that was awkward, bit of an overshare. That was not an amazing moment for me. But for every conversation like that, I've had 10 others that haven't been like that. So this is not a reflection of our church. But what is that moment? I I think it's easy to be indifferent like that, isn't it? It's easy to pretend. It's also easy to be envious instead of joyful. To rejoice at someone's news and smile through clenched teeth because you really wish that you had what they have. It's also easy to fake sadness. You know, when tragedy strikes a fellow Christian, you fake that you're sad, but really you're just glad that you dodged that bullet. Or maybe you feel smug at how your clever planning meant that tragedy didn't happen to you. 
instead of realizing that because we're a family, it did happen to you. This is your brother or sister in Christ. Verse 15 tells us, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. I think the other thing that makes this complex is that rejoicing and mourning happens at the same time at Salt Church. At the same time, we're rejoicing and mourning. Let me give you two examples of this. Uh, One is the COVID vaccine. Uh, Many of us have fully vaccinated, and we've been enjoying the freedoms that come with that. Uh, The freedom of restrictions easing and getting to see friends and family and go out and do stuff. And we're rejoicing about those freedoms. There's other people at Salt Church who, for various reasons, have decided not to get vaccinated. And I've spoken with a bunch of the people in our church who have decided not to get vaccinated. And they've put a lot of thought and a lot of prayer into that decision. And they are not enjoying the freedoms that the rest of us are enjoying. They're still in lockdown. They haven't been able to see friends and family. Some of the people in our church have lost jobs because of the stance that they've taken. And they're mourning that. Rejoicing and mourning are happening at the same time in our church. Here's another example marriages and weddings uh there's a bunch of people in our church who in 5 p.m church particularly who are getting married and across the years i've been here there's been heaps of weddings and that's exciting that's something to rejoice in and celebrate because here's a man and a woman making a commitment to each other they're making promises to love and serve each other for the rest of their lives for god's glory that's something to celebrate and rejoice in but at the same time there's so many of us who would love to be married But no one's asked us. We don't have a partner we could marry. There's mourning and grief about that. And those things exist at the same time. And so those of us who are rejoicing need to be mindful of those who are mourning and those who are mourning mindful of those who are rejoicing. We've got to do this together. I think there's a moment to be sympathetic and empathetic towards each other. I've got a question actually for you to chat about with the person next to you. Here's the question. What's the difference between empathy and and sympathy. Have a chat with the person next to you. What's the difference between empathy and sympathy? Go for it. All right, coming back. Okay, let's see. I looked this up in the dictionary. Um, I'll give you the dictionary definition from the Merriam-Webster dictionary, and then I'll tell you a bit more about this. Here's what the Merriam-Webster dictionary says. This might surprise you. Sympathy is when you share in the feelings of others. Empathy is when you understand the feelings of another or their perspective, but don't necessarily share in it. Sympathy, when you share the feelings of others. Empathy, when you understand the feelings of another or their perspective, but you don't necessarily share in it. I feel like that's the opposite of the way that we use these words. And actually, as I looked up more dictionaries, they just used them interchangeably. It was so confusing. So I don't even know what the difference is. Um, I looked up, the, it originally comes from a Greek word, sympathy means with emotion, and empathy means in emotion. What's the difference between with and in? Like, they're almost the same thing. But I reckon this passage is actually asking us for both. It's asking us to understand, share in, participate with people, share in the rejoicing, share in the mourning, uh, and, and understand and, and take the time to put yourself in the shoes of the other person. And that sounds, I've got to say, that sounds exhausting, doesn't it? You know, I'm going to finish talking, we're going to do some other stuff, and then you're going to turn to the people around you when church is over, and you're going to ask people how your week's been. And for some of us, it's been a great week. We're going to be rejoicing, and so you're going to share in that. And then you'll turn to the next person, and they've had a terrible week, and they burst into tears, and you're going to cry with them. And then you'll turn to the next person, they've had a great week, and you're going to smile with them. How do you do that? That sounds exhausting, you know? What's this talking about? Well, it's not talking about faking emotions. Or being someone that you're not. It's not talking about changing your personality like a chameleon to match whoever it is that you're talking to. It's saying instead of indifference, instead of envy or smugness, care about the lives of the Christians around you. 
Care about the lives of the people around you. That's what it's asking us to do. Now, is that bad or is it beautiful? Surely it's beautiful. Because who doesn't want to have people around you who care about your life? Who ride the ups and downs of life with you? I think we all want that. But it's also beautiful because it works. Uh, This command expects that life will be good and bad at the same time. Uh, I think sometimes we have this belief that I'm in some bad stuff and, you know, but just around the corner, things are going to get better. Just around the corner, things are going to be perfect. There'll be no more of that bad stuff. And, you know, life is a little bit like that. It ebbs and flows and there's ups and downs. But I think in reality, life is a little bit more like train tracks. You've got good stuff and you've got bad stuff and they just go along next to each other in our lives. It's not like around the corner, it's all going to be great. No, the great and the bad are there at the same time because the world that we live in is broken and fallen and cursed. But it's a good world made by God and he still rules it. So you've got bad and good there at the same time. That's the world that we're in. And this command expects that this will happen. It expects a realistic picture of the world. It's heaps more realistic than what our culture tells us to do. Because I reckon our culture tells us to just plaster a fake smile on your face and pretend that everything is okay, even if it's not. Because don't be that person who brings other people down. I heard about a guy who found out he had cancer, uh, and really devastating news for him. And after a couple of weeks, not days, weeks, he finally told his friends, and the way he told them is he was apologizing for telling them because he was worried that he was oversharing and that he was going to bring them down. But what are friends for if not to share in moments like that with you? And what is your Christian family for if not to share in moments like that with you? This is, command is beautiful because it works, and it works in the world that we live in, as you'd expect it to, because God made this world, and he knows how to live. He knows he rules this world. So this is a beautiful command. Next question, is it unrealistic or achievable? What's achievable? Because Jesus does it. Jesus cares about people. Jesus goes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus. There's a picture of Jesus. Imagine you're seeing a picture of Jesus surrounded by people, loving and caring for them. That's what's meant to be there. Uh, What's Jesus do? He goes to the tomb of his friend where his friend Lazarus has, has died and he's buried. And he goes there and he weeps for Lazarus even though he's just about to raise him from the dead. On the cross, Jesus is dying and he tells his friend John to look after his mother. What would you do if you were dying on a cross? I don't think I'd be worried about anyone but me. But Jesus is there caring for his mum, making sure that his mum is cared for after he dies. He rejoices with his disciples when they see him risen from the dead. Jesus cares. And so... We need to rejoice and mourn like Jesus. Third command, have a look, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. Uh, It's 27 days until Christmas. 27 days, not too long. And I think Christmas gives us the perfect picture of harmony and the lack of harmony. Because on Christmas Day, there'll be plenty of homes full of happy people celebrating with their friends and family. But on Christmas, there'll also be lots of people who are fighting. I'm told that Christmas Day is one of the busiest days in the year for cops as they come to break up all the domestic disputes that happen. See, what picture of those two pictures, which one captures better how Christians are meant to be? Surely it's this one. This is what Christian community is meant to be like. We're meant to be in harmony, thinking and acting in ways that promote harmony and unity, eager to learn from each other, respecting each other when we've got differences. And the enemy of harmony, the thing that will most undermine harmony, is pride, which is the next part of verse 16. Have a look at verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Um, For some reason, I just pulled this off the net. I feel like I found my doppelganger. (laughs) This is so weird. I don't know who this guy is or why he's impersonating me, but he's more proud than me. So there you go. 
But what happens when you're proud? It's really hard to have harmony when you're proud, when you're looking down on others, when you're not willing to associate with some people and mix with them. You're not willing to be seen in the same company. Uh, This passage here says, uh, associate with people of low position. And I don't know who you think of as someone in a low position or, or someone who's lowly. I reckon we probably each class different people as lowly and our culture would class different people. Uh, it might be for you, it might be someone who's homeless or it might be a, a refugee or a migrant or someone like that. Uh, it might be someone who's on, you know, married with kids on a single income or, or someone who a single parent. Uh, it might be someone who's never been to university or TAFE. It might be someone who only owns one home and not three homes. Whatever it is for you, we, we kind of rank in all these different ways. But the point is, be willing to mix with any and everyone. It's kind of ridiculous, actually, how we class different people, like they have different value based on where they fit in the pecking order. They all value, they're all valuable, they all matter because God has created them. And this is saying, be willing to mix with any and everyone, especially any and every Christian. In the same vein, verse, the end of verse 16 says the same thing. Don't be proud, be willing to associate with people of low position, do not be conceited. Or more literally, it says, do not be wise in your own sight. Don't make yourself the measure of wisdom. God is the measure of wisdom. Not me, not you, not us. And if you live like that, it will undermine harmony and unity. Now, is this bad or is it beautiful? On the surface, I think we kind of love to compare ourselves to other people. Uh, Because we feel proud when we do that. It feels proud to know that you're better than someone else. To get the award, to win the race, to get employee of the month or whatever it is. And you can always find someone that you're better at then. Whatever the thing is, you can find someone out there that you're better than. But if we buy into that system, we end up being judged as well. If we buy into it, if we act the same way, we are being judged. We're being ranked and compared as well. I think that's what we do at the surface, but deeper down, don't you really admire people who treat everyone the same? You know, who doesn't suck up to the boss and then turn and speak down to their staff? Someone who's just genuine with everyone. Being free from pride, mixing with any and all Christians, being united in a community together, that's the goal. And it's an attractive goal. So is it unrealistic or achievable? It's achievable because Jesus does it. Here's what Philippians 2 tells us. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the infinite Lord of the universe. And he humbles himself to take on humanity. And he humbles himself being obedient to build the church. Jesus obeys everything his Father commanded, even to death, even the shame of death on a cross. Harmony and humility that God commands is possible because Jesus does this. See, what God commands is beautiful. We know it's good because God is good and we can trust him. But I hope you've seen more of how these commands are good. So that we can love and value and protect what God loves and values and protects in these commands. And as well as being beautiful, they're also achievable because Jesus does these commands. It's possible to do them because Jesus does what Jesus commands, which I suspect and I hope leads you to raise one obvious objection. Yeah, but I'm not Jesus. I hope you've made that connection in your head. I'm not Jesus. He's perfectly and sinless and the Son of God. We're not. And that's right. We are not Jesus. But you're becoming like Jesus if you're a Christian. That's the point of this Bible verse, one of famous one and one of my favorites, Romans 8. Here's what it says. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, 
Now, for years, I misread and misunderstood this verse. Uh, I, used, I thought it said that God gives good to those who love him. And that's true. God does give good to those who love him. But that's not what it says. It said God works for the good of those who love him. Which means in blessing, in suffering, in persecution, in evil, in our own sin and failures, God is at work for our good in all things. Then I misread what the good is. I thought the good is whatever I say is good. Whatever makes me happy, surely that's what God's doing in it. But that's not what it says either. God's actually doing something much bigger than that. It's the end of the verse where it says he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. God is molding and shaping and remaking and transforming us to be like the son of God, Jesus Christ. And this is the reason why the commands of God are now achievable for Christians. Because Christians are being remade to be like Jesus. It's a little bit like a before and after photo. I don't know which one pictures your house better. Hopefully the after picture. Here's the before though. In Romans 12, we're hearing the commands of God. But all of these commands hang on 12 verse 1. Have a look at it. Chapter 12 verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice in response to God's mercy. It all hangs on that. In response to God's mercy, obey all these commands. See, God's mercy alone is what moves a Christian from the before to the after. And we jumped in at Romans 12, but there's 11 chapters before this where God has shown us that we're the before image. We don't do what God asks and we can't renovate ourselves enough to get out of our own mess. Just like a home renovation, we need someone with the skills to come in and fix it and fix the mess. And the Son of God comes. Jesus comes. He's perfect and he's sinless and he's truly human. And as a human, Jesus keeps all the commands of God. Jesus obeys God fully. He succeeds where all other humans have failed. And his success changes everyone who trusts in Jesus. Because Jesus obeys God for us, so that we're forgiven by God for not keeping God's commands. So every time you see a command from God, it should lead us to admire Jesus even more. Because he's the one who succeeded when we failed. And his success changes everyone who trusts in Jesus. He obeys God for us, so we're forgiven by God for not keeping the commands of God. And so Christians, we're treated like we've been put in the after room. We're after people because Jesus is an after person. And he's putting us, he puts us in that room too. We're forgiven and accepted based on Jesus' obedience. That's how we get into that new room. Then, to stretch this metaphor beyond breaking point, once we're in that room, God is remaking us to fit that room. We're in that room and God's remaking us to be like Jesus. We belong in the new room because Jesus belongs there and he puts us there, he takes us there. But it's like we're the the asbestos sheets and the broken plumbing from the old room sitting on the brand new couch. And so God is there transforming us. God gives us his Holy Spirit and the power of God at work in us to lead us to obey and love God and to obey and love God's commands. The power of God is at work in us. We're not on our own doing this. God, the Holy Spirit in us, is transforming us to make us like Jesus. And that's why these commands are beautiful and achievable. God forgives us for not doing his commands. He empowers us to do what he commands by his Spirit, and he transforms us to love what he commands. It's only possible to keep these commands of God if you trust in Jesus first, because only Jesus can move from before to after. This is one renovation you can't do on your own. But having been moved, having been saved and forgiven and accepted based on Jesus' obedience, Christians, we now belong in that new room, and we're being remade to fit that new room. So let's go and be like Jesus. Let's obey these beautiful commands of God, because now, through Jesus, we can. 
Let's pray and ask God to help us do that. Father God, thank you so much for your mercy to us. Thank you for sending your son who is like this, who blessed us when he should have cursed, who cares about the lives of the people around him and loves us so deeply that we don't deserve it, who is humble, not proud. Thank you, Lord, that you have saved us as we trust in Jesus. And thank you that you're remaking us so that we live like Jesus. We pray that we would. We pray that this would characterize the way we live as Christians and as a church and the way we speak and act to the people around us in our community. We ask all this for your glory, Lord. Amen. After the sermon, we also had a time of Q&A where people submitted questions and our pastor answered them. And we've included that as part of the podcast here now. answer them all so it really helps if you can give a thumbs up for any that you'd find particularly helpful and I guess while you do that I encourage you to just be be thinking on how does that sit with me are God's commands are they glorious and are they achievable and if not how can I be bringing that to God in prayer all righty do you want to take a peek to start with Take a look. Oh, hey, I get to pick. pick the question. Well, wow. oh, just for now, is there any that stand out to you? I've got a question for you. Mel. Oh, do you? Radio. Um, Nothing like putting me in the hot seat, <laughs> hey? If you didn't know, Mel is a psychologist and she's very wise. Um, I, one of the questions that's here, which she, you might know more than me, um, but I think it is definitely a question that comes out with this. Uh, how do you care for others without being totally burnt out and trashed yourself? How do you do that in a way where people aren't dependent on you mm. or you're not dependent on other people? Like, how do, you, how do you rejoice and mourn but yet stay alive? <laughs> yeah, it's so hard, isn't it? And I saw there was a question like that. Actually, it's up there. Another person was asking a very similar question. Mm. I feel exhausted by the constant needs of those around me. I genuinely care for them. How do I do that whilst also caring for my own well-being? And I guess your question, Jeff, was how do we do that well, caring for others and also caring for ourselves? Mm. Is that kind yeah, of what you yeah, were asking? Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Okay. Yep. So I guess I'm going to give it a human perspective, a Melinda perspective and a psychologist perspective all in one. I think it's, you know, it's hard. Hey, we know needs can be great with people around us. We we know that God cares, that God loves people, that he sees their every need, and he also sees our every need. And so I think a really important thing that I have to practice regularly in my own life is how can I balance both loving others and also loving that, that God has made us as individuals with needs as well. Um, and so I guess it's a balance of... I think lots of people are often growing up hearing um, kind of God, others, you, and it can be really easy for people to burn out and to sort of always think, I don't have time to, you know, go for a jog or eat healthy or get eight hours sleep because there's just no time for that. There's so much need. And so I think it's about A, looking at how can I be aware of loving others and be practical in doing that. Um, and so it might be hard choices of, okay, I've got such a busy week, I'm going to have an hour less of Netflix, so I've got space, knowing this person is going through a hard time, and I'm going to be intentional about having less on so that I can connect with that person this week. Um, for others, it might be thinking, right, I, I'm going to make sure I get eight hours sleep because I need that to be the best person I can be, so that I'm not you know, saying things that I would regret with people. Um, so I think it's both. And I think the thing that encourages me is looking at how Jesus lived. I guess you explored that so well tonight. And part of that was that Jesus knew the needs of everybody around him and he loved them and he met them in that place. But even Jesus took time aside to mm. go, get up early and pray and teach his disciples, even though he knew there were thousands of people that needed healing. And so he was able to both see the needs, but also acknowledge his need to have time with God and his need for his purpose, which was to teach people about him. And so I guess it's balancing both how God can love others and love us and knowing that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, just like the person with a lot of needs at that moment is fearfully and wonderfully made. Mm. And so how can we look at both loving ourselves and loving others 
and caring for both. Mm. Um, yeah, at the same, both valuable. We both matter to God. Absolutely, mm. yeah. yeah. At the same time as knowing that there's verses in the Bible that talk about um, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Mm. And it's God equipping us to care for others. And I think that's an encouragement thing too. And trusting in God's mercy that it doesn't have to be I know I have an oversense of responsibility sometimes and I might think, oh, well, if I don't help, who's going to help that person? Mm. And almost sometimes that's me not trusting God. Mm. I also have to trust that we have a responsibility to care, but we also have a responsibility to trust God as well, that he will also equip people, that we do it together as a body of Christ. And I think that's how we do it sustainably. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, look, Alpine, what a legend, everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful, Mel. Um, I think one extra thing for me as well is um, just realizing that God doesn't need me to do it. He is so powerful. There's lots of verses that talk about God being the God of all comfort. Um, it might be that he uses me, but he could use other people if not me. Yeah. I think that frees me. Uh, and then also knowing that in order to love and serve people, I need to look after myself. Because mm. if I've got nothing left, I don't have anything to give. Um, that's another thing that helps me. Yeah, yeah, nice. I think it's about using the body of Christ too. If we see mm. a need, sharing that with someone else who might have the capacity at that time to help meet that need. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think it's holding both. Yeah, yeah. So let's chuck in on some other questions. We've got... Um, um, what have we got? Jesus makes forgiveness possible, even in the case of abuse. Does that mean we should live in harmony with people who formerly abused us? That's a really good question. There's some similar ones like that I saw as well in that, that same vein of uh, how do you keep people accountable? Um, Matt has a good question about um, what about those places in the Bible that where it calls for God to judge people for the evil that they've done? Like I think there's a similar... Similar kind of vein for that. Um, I think my short answer is come back next week and Michael will answer it and I'll throw that question to him. But I say that because the passage that we're looking at next week is dealing with that question of where, where does justice come? Where do you get vengeance um, over the people who have mistreated you, have persecuted you, have caused abuse? Um, so partly we'll find out more next week. Uh, but I think for this particular question... I think um, similar to what we were talking about with some of that self-care, what do you do with people who have abused you? I think it, it's, it's so wrong that they've done that, and God hates that. God calls evil, evil. Uh, and whether you're a Christian or not, that's true. This evil is evil. And so abuse, we should feel angry about it. Uh, I think as well, only in the power of the gospel, um, you can come to a place over time as a journey of forgiving the person who's abused you it's not straightforward it's not definitely not an overnight thing um, but by the power of god i think you can come to that place but that doesn't mean you're you're foolish it doesn't mean you're not wise it, just like if um if someone is an ex-criminal uh you want to be careful about how you interact with them you want to you want to uh, be kind to them you want to be thoughtful but you also want to be mindful of the fact that they've they're a criminal. They've been to prison for whatever it is that they've done. I want to be wise about that way I react and relate with them. Um, I think it's similar. Mm. When people have abused you, uh, it's really hard. That, that has some deep effects on us. Harmony doesn't necessarily look like being best friends with that person. But it does look like not trying to undermine that person, not trying to disrespect or, or um, fight back in the same way that they've fought against you. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. And I think the the tapping into the living in harmony, I think it's important considering safety and harmony. Uh, like you can live in harmony whilst not potentially living in an abusive relationship. Mm. Or you can look at how can I forgive this person in my heart, but also acknowledge that there's going to need to be some boundaries in place or some behavior change um, to help facilitate that relationship growth. Mm. So I think God enables us to forgive people. And in that passage, how are talking about bless and do not curse. I think God enables us to bless and wish well and want the goodness of others whilst at the same time ensuring our own well-being and safety as well. Yeah, and yeah. there's even something in the word bless. Like I think blessing is about praying for their good. Mm. What is their good? 
Well, they're good is that they'll learn to live God's way mm. and that whatever it is that's causing them to be an abuser, that God will change that in them. So you actually still want that for them. That's the best thing for them so that whatever you've experienced doesn't happen to other people. Um, that's part of what you're praying for. Mm. Yeah. Um, another question we've got is um, Salt has a big ministry for kids, a marriage day, etc., for couples. How can we better acknowledge and support singles in our church? That's a great question. Uh, that's a really important thing for us to do. And I think it's something that as a church, we probably could get much better at. Um, I think a couple of thoughts. One, let the single people among us teach us how to do it. Uh, so um, I think when you, when you get married, particularly if you have kids, your life does sort of, your, your um, perspective changes, your life kind of shrinks because there's a lot, you, you, there's a lot you do as a couple. I think one of the beautiful gifts that the single people among us do is help break us out of that uh, and break us out of our kind of family idolatry and our couple idolatry that we can have. Um, So one thing is just helping married people, single people uh, invite over and and interact in their lives. I noticed for Fiona and I, when we first got married, we started just inviting over people who were married because that's the phase of life we were in. And then we're like, hang on, we want to... We want to be blessed by people who aren't married and we want to be able to bless them and do life together. We want to make sure that we don't just slip into this coupledom family life. And then the same thing happened when we had kids. It's like, who are we going to invite over? Oh, people who have kids the same age as our kids so they can play together. No, we want more than that. Um, so I think that's one thing. The other thing is, um, as a church, there's a couple of different conferences that we run and different conferences that we go to. Uh, next year, we're going to be plugging a conference called the Single-Minded Conference. Um, you can have a look on your on Google, look this up. There's some awesome resources on there. And one of the single people, some single women in our church has put me onto this. It looks awesome. It looks like a really helpful conference for us to think about, uh, particularly for those of us who are married, how do we live for God in the challenges and opportunities that come with that. But I'm not just going to be plugging, I'm, I'm going to be plugging this conference. I'm not going to be plugging it just for the single people in us. I want all of us to go. Because the married people, this is our church. We want to care and love for one another in our church. So jump on single-minded conference. Let's chat. Let's keep working it out. I think this is a great way for us to grow in community for Mm. sure. And I think, um, as you say, that's really helpful that Salt is looking at what kind of conferences can there be that can really tap into what's the experience of singles like and how can we, you know, treasure and value that just as much as we value the experiences of married people as well. Mm. Um, And I think as well something that, like that SALT is doing and can be more aware of as well is that people can raise their their thoughts of what they would like to be focus areas to be able to share, hey, this is really important. And just like it's great for people who are married to be chatting with people about, hey, I'm growing with this in God and I'm struggling with this in my relationship with my husband or whatever, for singles to be able to share, hey, like I'd love to be married, but I'm really struggling in trusting God and contentment in this. And so I think when we open up those conversations, we become more united as a church as well. Mm. Um, and just, I guess, that intention and awareness of acknowledging we're all part of the body of Christ, equally valued and treasured with the gifts that we bring. Mm. Yeah. yeah. All righty. So we might wrap up there. I or feel do you like have I want more? to answer the, um, that one at the top. Why okay. do I keep saying especially Christian? Go for it. That's a really great question. Um, opening Bob's up. Let me, let me do this quick. This is not sermon part two. Unless you want it to be. And then. <laughs> Andy and I, Andy's one of the other pastors at Soul Church. We joke about our blog that we would write that has all the stuff that we wanted to say in the sermon but didn't. But we, we don't actually have a blog. Um, but there's definitely that. That definitely happens. I think this is a really important question. And it, it's really, it's quite a common one when you're looking at a passage like Romans 12. And the answer is we jumped in halfway through the book. Um, so why am I saying especially Christians? The stuff that we're looking at is good stuff for all people to do, whether you're a Christian or not. Um, it is just stuff that works in our world, but it works in our world because God made the world. Um, but this is great ways to live. So why especially Christians? It's because the, the commands that God gives are not the thing that make you a Christian. Um, I think this is one of those really common misunderstandings about Christianity. I used to believe this when I was a young kid. It used to be like, you know, I'm the before room. How do I become the after room? 
Well, I go and renovate myself and I, I've got to work and I've got to do all these commands. And if I can keep all these commands, then God will accept me. Then, you know, then I'll keep on living this way. That's not how the Christian life works. And let me show you Romans chapter 4. Come to Romans chapter 4. This is just one place that talks about this. Um, it's kind of the same thing as the in view of God's mercy. But here's what it says. It's looking at this guy named Abraham, who's the start of the Jewish nation, kind of the the forefather of how we end up as Christians. And it talks about how, uh, verse 3, what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. When you go to work and you get paid, you're not like, thanks, boss, thanks for the gift. It's like, no, I earned this, I deserve this. Um, So he says, however... To the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Complicated language, but it's basically saying we don't work to be saved. We don't earn it. We don't deserve to be saved and accepted by God. We trust God because God justifies the ungodly. God, God makes us who were before people into after people when we can't do that ourselves. So the reason why it's especially Christians is that you, you have to have that happen first. Um, you can listen in, and you can even copy and imitate the, the things that Christians do. But the reason that we do it, and the power to do it, comes from God saving us and, and making us right with Him when we didn't deserve to be. Which I think is, is why often people feel judged when they hang out with Christians. Like we're, you know, It's like the cake thing, eating your second piece of cake. It's like, you think that people around me often think that I'm claiming to be perfect or I'm claiming to be better than you. I'm claiming to be terrible. I'm claiming to be a sinner who needs to be forgiven. I'm just claiming that Jesus has forgiven me, forgiven me. And, and I'm claiming that the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in me, causing me to do things that I kind of don't really want to do. Um, that's the change. That's the difference between Christians and non-Christians. And I think because we really want people to know this, this is incredible that God would do this. This is why we run things like the events that we're running. And this is why Mel was chatting about who can you invite and who can you bring? It sounds like, oh, who are we targeting? But actually, no, it's, it's beautiful. We want everyone to know this great news that you can be like this. You can be forgiven and welcomed and accepted as well uh, and have the power to obey these commands. But whether you are or not, they're great commands, follow along. But the power, the reason, the change to lead you to do them comes from God. Yeah. yeah. And I love how you said that it's God who empowers us to mm. live out those commands. So yeah. on that, I might just pray for us that God would enable us to do that.